The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Jane Linscold and DJ Butler talk right here about overware and one man's quest to find a new life on another world and find his lost dog in the process. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, DJ Butler sits down with Jane Linscold and asks, can it get any weirder? As they discuss the second book in the Overwear series, The Aurora Borealis Bridge. But first, the news. There's free fiction at Bain.com. Looking for a little something to tide you over between long reads? Head on over to the website and check out A Window on Samovar by podcast regular DJ Butler. The story is set in the world of his upcoming novel, Abbott in Darkness, and serves as something of a prequel to that tale. Let's take a look. John Abbott and his family hoped his new job on the far-flung colony world of Samovar would be a fresh start. The trip aboard the starship Oberon, while not the height of luxury, wasn't so bad, except for the fact that there were no windows aboard the craft save the observation deck which was reserved for dignitaries, a fact which was no end of frustration to Abbott's young daughter, Ellie. But now they are about to reach their destination and their new lives. But before they do, they'll have to find their pet dog, Annie, who has gone missing aboard the Oberon, and in the process, discover some strange and wonderful secrets. That's A Window on Samovar, free fiction by DJ Butler. And that's it for the news. Hi, this is uh, DJ uh, Dave Butler. Uh, I'm here with Jane Linskill to talk about her new novel, Aurora Borealis Bridge, a sequel to kind of part two of Library of the Sapphire Wind, out back to back. Uh, it's now out in hardcover and all your uh, e-book, for, uh, e-book formats, DRM-free when you buy them at Bain, uh, as always. Um, Jane Linsgold is the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of over 30 novels and also 80 short stories, uh, including the six-volume Fire Keeper Saga, the two Athenor novels, and three volumes of the Breaking of the Wall series, the Artemis Awakening series, and many more. She has also written in collaboration with David Weber, uh, Fire Season and Tree Cat Wars, and I think we'll be seeing Jane back to talk about that in just a few weeks again. Uh, and Roger Zelazny, uh, Donner Jack and Lord Demon. When she's not writing or reading, she's likely being ordered around by a variety of small animals. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. So, um, so we, we talked uh, about um, Library of the Sapphire Wind a few weeks ago. Um, I, I guess I, I want to not assume too much that someone listening to the podcast uh, or watching it also watched that episode. Likely they did, but maybe not. Um, so, but maybe just uh, tell us uh, about the relationship between these two books. You have books out three months apart here, right? Two, um, two months apart. So, uh, Tell us about the history of that and why we have books out back to back. Well, part of it is because when I started writing it, um, like uh, Topsy says in Uncle Tom's Cabin, it just grows. And it hit a point where to publish it as one book would be, uh, especially in uh, the current marketplace, um, just untenable. So I found a breaking point and and uh, that's how it was picked up. It's, it's, it really is one story, but it would be one story that no one would be able to pick the book up on. So uh, we, need, we needed to break it. Yeah. And when you say current uh, market, are you talking about reader preferences or paper shortage or, or both? 
all, all of, some of the above, all of the above. When I started publishing in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, the, door, the book that could substitute as a doorstop um, was not an unknown phenomenon. But probably, I'd say, in the somewhere in the first decade of the 2000s, both bookstores and um, and uh, readers became frustrated with books that were a commitment of of their lifetime. They couldn't pick them up. Um, the, yeah. I'll be completely honest. The I. I had some books that were produced by a publisher who was trying to save on paper costs. And the print was so small that I was doing a book signing. Someone came in very excited, wanted to pick up the book, looked at it and said, I can't read this print. And I agreed with her. I, I wholeheartedly agreed with her. So, um, so a lot of things led into it, not necessarily the current paper shortage by any means. Um, I think this is a trend that's been going on for at least 10 years. Um, unless you have a readership that already expects you to publish doorstops like say David Weber, yeah. um, the, both the publisher and the bookstores want something a little more easy to pick up and a little more easy to store. Yeah. Yeah, interesting how that stuff comes and goes in trends. You know, when I was a kid, I, the, El, the Elric novels were all very, yes. very short, you know, but then Robert Jordan and, and uh, came out with much fatter volumes. Uh, oh, yeah. I remember Roger Zelazny, who certainly was not a tyro, being a little bit panicked when he committed to a much higher word count for what would have been Donner Jack, his, his version of Donner Jack, um, because he had never committed to writing anything that long. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Uh, as, as you and I talk, I think the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter is still open and has raised something like twenty-five million dollars. So there are some readers out there who are still looking, or, or maybe maybe we'll see the tide go back the other way. But like, well, I, don't think sure. is, I think it is incorrect to assume those books are large. Not all of his books are huge. That's true. Uh, just been reading. Um, one of his uh, young adult series. And I don't think it's over a hundred thousand words. And I think it might be shorter once you put in the fact that it's got very large print. So uh, assuming that he wrote four doorstops um, is, is not necessarily correct. Yeah, you're, you're right. And I don't know what those books are for sure. Yeah, they could be a lot, a lot more slender than say the Mistborn books or the Robert Jordan books. Yeah, uh, because he already has a publication record for writing uh, slimmer books. Hmm. Um, in fact, I think some of his best work is at a, a smaller side. I've quite quite enjoyed some of it. Well, uh, well, let's but let's talk about your work a little more. So let's okay. so let's set up the story. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to avoid spoilers so scrupulously that we can't say anything. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is book two. This is book two. All right. So so tell us, let's talk about the characters, uh, three women from Earth uh, and some associates, three inquisitors and related parties. Who, who are we dealing with at the start of the book and, and where are they? Okay. Um, Library of the Sapphire Wind introduced three humans from Earth who are uh, all uh, except, well, Peg and Meg are both retiree age. Peg is still working. She's in her 50s and is still an active college professor, but she's on sabbatical, um, who get summoned. At first, they think by accident. Later, it turns out it was probably not an accident at all into an alternate world that Peg dubs Overwear. And uh, their role is to serve as mentors for three young people native to that world, all of whom are what their culture defines as holdbacks. They have something that is messing with their heads um, that is making it difficult to them to move ahead. 
uh, you might think of them as uh, gap year students. They're in their late teens, in the youngest case, Paris, or early 20s, but that moving on into adult world responsibilities is being held back by some unresolved issues. And none of those issues are trivial. These aren't lightweight people who can't decide who to take to the prom. They're all very major issues. And so unable to solve them on their own, they go to a shrine that has a reputation for providing guidance and mentors. And to their surprise, they end up with three people from another world. Um, and in the course of the first book, they discover that they've actually got the right people for the job on a lot of levels. Um, and it's a terrific amount of fun, but there's also, I think, an underlying seriousness uh, dealing with these issues. And, but there's plenty of room for clashing swords and flying ships and some very nice clothes uh, and all the good things that make reading fantasy and science fiction a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and book two continues to be a heck of a lot of fun. Let's, let's, let's talk. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, and I like the way it does a, a, a wonderful job of sort of uh, knitting around, uh, pulling in the, in the strands. As you say, it's, it's not random that these three women uh, right. are the mentors. And other things that may appear random turn out to have a nice, satisfying tie together. Um, they're, uh, so, so these holdbacks, uh, or they're also, they're also called by the translation spell that operates <laughs> between English and the, and the language of this other world of overware. Uh, they're called inquisitors. Because yes. um, they, they, they have a question, they have a problem. Yeah, they have questions. They have questions. Uh, so, so let's talk about those. Uh, oh, by the way, they are, uh, they are Therianthropes. They are, they are beast people. Uh, right. From the perspective of the earthlings, they look like a human shape, but animal features. Right. Animal, they, ha they have essentially a bipedal human form from the neck down, yeah. uh, but they're above the neck. They're, it kind of merges around the neck. Yeah. Um, they have uh, what we would call an animal head. Uh, Grunwald's is of a stag. Uh, Xerax is of a lion and Bereses is of a fox. They also have the appropriate tail and the uh, fingernails and hands will have sometimes claws or just heavier, thicker nails. And body coloring will follow the pattern of their animal self. So Bereses, who is the fox marked one, uh, since the red fox tends to have darker paws, has darker hands and very dark fingernails. Um, so it's not just a, you know, paste on your Halloween head from the party store and, uh, and a, a tail. It's, it's a complete hybridization. Yeah. So complete that they don't, they don't perceive themselves as hybrids at all. Uh, no. In fact, they're rather startled that yeah. um, Meg, Peg, and Teg all look, as far as they're concerned, pretty much alike. Yeah. There's a there's a delightful moment uh, later in the book. Meg, Peg, and Teg wear masks around uh, so as not to startle or frighten uh, the locals with their horrifying human uh, faces. Uh, and there's a delightful moment later in the book where I think it's Peg uses uses that to her <laughs> sudden tactical advantage, which is I won't, yeah, I won't I, talk about it more than that. But. <laughs> I like that moment too. Yeah. Peg is Peg is definitely the madly impulsive one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love some of the stuff she comes up with in there. And I'm one of those horribly uh, intuitive plotters who, honestly, my players do have a tendency to do things like rip off their mask and run screaming. And I'm going, oh, well, I didn't expect that, but that's cool. Let's run with it. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, um... Okay, well, the, the, the challenges that the Heldback have, uh, uh, at least two of them are still active, right? Grunwald right. gets some kind of resolution in the first book. Right. Um, his, uh, tell us maybe a little bit about his, his, uh, his illness, or his, sorry, his challenge, 
uh, yeah. and, and his background. Well, one of the things, and this is a big spoiler, so uh, those of you who haven't read Library of the Sapphire Wind, do this. Yeah. Um, Grunwald's father, Connell, is suffering from a disease not unlike uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which, by the way, killed my dad. Um, so, you know, write about what you know. Um, and, <clears throat> and one of the things that really disturbs Grunwald is that nobody seems to be looking for a cure. That's his holdback. He can't, as he says, how can I just go on and you know finish college and start helping run the family business when nobody seems to be doing anything about what's happening to dad? So he um, he that's his his determination. And in the course of trying to find a cure for his father, he also finds out there's a reason his father isn't looking for a cure, and that's because it's it turns out that, um, cover your ears folks, that uh, the three inquisitors' parents, they don't know this, were all of what is politely termed extraction agents and were directly responsible, though not by intention, for the destruction of the Library of the Sapphire Wind. So suddenly what seemed to be unconnected things begin to thread into each other. And by the time they have a, what will not, Proved to be a complete cure for Connell, but at least enough to get him back to functioning. Um, they also are beginning to suspect that it's not a coincidence that the shrine sent them to the library to find answers to their problems. So by the end of Library of the Sapphire Wind, we have a solution for Grunwald. We have, and we're sort of partway into Varese's. Varese's yep. uh, problem is that there is a child she is looking for, uh, her little sister, ostensibly, and, uh, and no one will help her, and every time she's looked, she's been run up short. But by the end of Library of the Sapphire Wind, they're at least moving toward assembling what they're going to need to find that out. And then the last of the Inquisitor's crests Quests also has to do with a missing person, but in this case, it's Zarak's teacher. Um, Zarak is an extremely talented young wizard, and he was sort of part of a very small tutorial school rather than attending the big university. And one day his master just suddenly vanishes. And he's very upset. And later on, you find out why he blames himself so horribly for his master's vanishing. Yeah. Um, so those are their, their three inquisitions. Yeah. And- uh, Can you pull the shade out? Uh, and I'm gonna make a little comment. So I guess I'm gonna say this is a spoiler also. So maybe you, you wanna cover your ears if you really don't want spoilers. But I just thought it was very poignant and um, played with a very gentle touch and sort of um, it, it's easy to overplay the idea that Zarek might have been attracted to his teacher and that might have been right. part of sort of the tension and where things went wrong and mm -hmm. that was very uh, you played it with a very light and gentle touch and I thought that was uh, that made it poignant well done so thank you yeah um, I should have like a signal like like for cover your ears uh, yeah and then now you can uncover them <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, okay. And there's also, it, um, it's not quite right to think of those as main plots because those, the, the inquisitions uh, are driving them, but, but there's sort of an, there's sort of another uh, piece connected with all the, uh, inquisitions, which is the, uh, the, uh, recovery and reassembly of this artifact, right. right uh, called the Bajed of the Weaver. And as of right. the book, uh, which is like a, it's like a nest. With, and then a bird and then a cap, right? Is that is that right? right? It's got a spindle base yeah. on which there is a, an intricately carved uh, nest. And then the bird is actually the cap that holds the three parts together. Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and as of the end of book one, they basically have two thirds of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, so a piece, so there's, so book one opens, uh, we see the three inquisitors, children of the extraction agents 
maybe burglars. Uh, uh, and and their three mentors, they're all the library. Now, now you mentioned the library of the Sapphire Wind. This is far from an ordinary library. Yes. Uh, maybe a little bit, because it continues to be an, a character, really, that yes, drives the direction. Right. The library of the Sapphire Wind, um, at the time of the book start, the first book starting, was destroyed about 25 years ago, and pretty thoroughly. Um, or so it seems. It turns out that the main body of the structure actually uh, sort of earthquake dropped beneath the, the level of the ground, which is why people assumed it had been completely crashed. Um, but the library of the, the Sapphire Wind has basically what the Romans would have called a genius loci or, or loci, depending on whether who your Latin instructor was. And um, they uh, and they just refer to it as Sapphire Wind. It's a intelligent but damaged entity. It's damaged because it was originally designed to be able to tap the latent power of Badajet of the Weaver, the broken artifact. So it has done its best. And one of the things that it drained itself dramatically in order to do is it saved all of the people who otherwise would have died during this horrific accident by archiving them. Uh, it basically overextended itself greatly. So on the one hand, at its best, it should be a highly competent uh, running everything entity, but it's struggling, it's, it's damaged. And it won't help them until they get back Bajet of the Weaver so that it can function appropriately. It's got its own agenda. Almost everybody has at least one agenda, sometimes several in this book. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that is very interesting in Aurora Borealis Bridge is they begin to realize that Badajet of the Weaver is not necessarily an isolated, uh, uh, you know, one ring whatever you want to call it yep. and the entire reason for the library of the sapphire wind being built is as a place to hide Bajet of the weaver because if you have a place that's full of magic it will mask the signature of something very powerful so who the heck was this wizard who was doing going to such extent i mean there are there are mysteries within mysteries and entwinings within entwinings uh it's not it's a very on the one hand, I suppose you could say it's a linear plot in that one thing leads to another, but certainly what expectations were at the beginning of Library of the Sapphire Wind and what expectations are uh, halfway through Aurora Borealis Bridge is very different. Yeah, things really ramp and expand. And then, like I said, they, 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 they tie back together very mm -hmm. nicely at the end. I, uh, a couple things what you said so uh so yeah so the the one artifact turns out not to be a solitary object there it, it is a piece of a larger whole um sort of similarly you know uh the quest the archiving of all these souls of these dead people right there's a this the story in in book one in the first half of the tale is really all about kind of maturation and then and then we get into this theme where we get into sort of questions about uh, about uh, you know a, a larger, a multiple lives kind of spiritual journey, right? And and in the same way that the inquisitors are sort of jammed up uh, and, and need to mature, there's something cosmological, uh, people, you know, uh, that's that's that has to do with this library that's that's jamming up all the people uh, yeah. in other well, ways. One of the things I really wanted to deal with in this book, I, I often like taking, when I write, I often like taking one element of something we automatically assume, and we have so many different cultural bases built around, and then change it and see where the ripple effect is. You've got an anthropological background, so I think you probably uh, understand this. And in Library of the Sapphire Wind, 
I wanted to have a culture that doesn't believe in reincarnation. They know there is reincarnation and not belief, knowledge. No. And this changes so many things in a ripple effect. Um, and so, for the, it, and, and that to me is one of the fascinating what if questions. You remove the question of, is there life after death? Yes. No. <laughs> you may not remember your past life, different people remember it, but yes, there is life after death. It changes a huge number of things uh, to have that as a definite rather than a matter of what your specific belief system is. And that's one of the things that uh, our humans uh, begin to, to have a little bit of, of dialogue issues with their, their local associates. There's one point that I think um, either Zarak or Grunwald yells at them and says, you know, don't ask if we know we live after death, why we care about dying, you know, we still don't necessarily know where we're, when we're gonna be reborn, where we're going to reborn, if we'll ever see the people we care about again. Um, so it, it allowed me to take a look at some, some, one of the big powering issues in human societies throughout the ages has been the question of not will there be, but is there and what form it will take. Yeah. And uh, Library of the Sapphire Wind and Aurora Borealis Bridge uh, are very much powered by, let's see what the implications are of, of reincarnation. Yeah. And it's interesting, you talk, you say, you know, across uh, human society, I mean, I think that's right. It's a universal worry, right? You will become conscious of death at some point. Uh, and, uh, so I love the fact that um, as as the character, everything is a point of view of Teg in, in book one and also in book two. But of course, there's a lot of conversation among the characters. And as they as the women in particular are sort of understanding the cosmology they're in now, um, it's it's still not wholly alien to them. Right. None, none of them is a Buddhist. None of them say, oh, yeah, well, sure. Right. I, I, I mean, mm -hmm. reincarnation. Uh, so there's there's some uh, um, I don't want to use too small a word. I, I don't want to say charming. There's some powerful. There's some interesting intersection with the Christian stories uh, about. And most Christians don't think about those stories in terms of reincarnation, right? Some maybe, mostly not. So the what I was referring to is the sort of the jamming of the the cosmos okay. is is perceived as as in terms of an angel with a flaming sword guarding the road back to Eden. Right, mm -hmm. which I thought was a really um, powerful kind of syncretic way to tie your story into a lot of um, myths and 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 stories about about life yeah. after death. Well, one of the things that my humans immediately, fairly early in Library of the Sapphire Wind, realized is that are their their new friends. To them, they have the head of a fox, a stag, a lion, but there are no foxes, no stags, no lions in this world. There are no badgers, no lynxes, no antelopes, but they are here in the form of the non-human traits of one of the resident populations. Why? And equally, they begin to see echoes of linguistic things. We talked about this last time. They begin to see echoes of um, languages that originated early in our Earth history. What is the tie? Um, so that had to be resolved, at least for me as a writer. I am not one of those people who am really happy with fancy window dressing and hand waving in, uh, in fantasy. I've, I've always, I've, you know, one of the great compliments my Firekeeper series has gotten over the years is from people who work with wolves, zookeepers, animal conservators, whatever, who say, thank you, your wolves are wolves. They aren't big dogs and they aren't humans in fursuits. Thank you, thank you. 
Um, and I brought the same attention. There's a lot of a lot of research underlying this for all that I felt perfectly happy having ships that fly. Um, there, there still is a tremendous amount of, of thought about the foundation. Not all of it will ever end up on the page because I'm not a big fan of info dumps. In fact, I completely hate info dumps and they make me climb walls. Um, I, I had one writer friend who once admitted that, damn it, I did all the work, they're going to read it. And I thought that's terrible. You're capable of better. And they probably won't read it anyway. They'll probably just skim to the next dialogue section. Exactly. Short exactly. <laughs> well, it's uh, that, that, uh, that work and those connections give the world a feeling that it is not frivolous, that it's not fanciful, that it's a, it has a genetic connection with uh, real experience. Right? So, mm -hmm. I, so, uh, so well done. Thank you, sir. Um, maybe we can give some uh, some indication without going too much into spoilers uh, about some of the direction of that the the adventure goes. The the first quest they go after is the ostensible baby sister, not baby, ostensible young sister of mm -hmm. Varese, right? Right. Um, what uh, maybe tell us a little bit about kind of where that child is and a, a little bit about what that quest looks like. Oh, I love this one. Um, basically, Varese is looking for this little girl. She's about four years old. That's all she knows. She knows it's a girl. She knows she's four years old. Sapphire Wind is able to give them a name and a location. Problem oh. is, the location is on the other side of the world. Uh, and their flying ship, Slice Wind, think of it more like a small plane. Um, you know, flying to the other side of the world on a Cessna is going to take a while. So they need to find a way, they hope to find a way to get to the other side of the world without necessarily having to uh, take six months to do so. So they, uh, when they get there, the it's an island nation called the Creator's Visage Islands. Yeah. And it is a different culture. Um, I didn't get as much of a chance to explore it as I wanted because, well, info don'ts. Um, but essentially, this culture is built around a tradition that their rulership can grant miracles. And when they get there, they find out, and I, to their shock and horror pretty quickly, that yes, the little girl is there, and uh, she's been nominated for the role of the next grantor of miracles. The only problem is at her age, it's gonna essentially drive her spirit either right out of her body or so subject it to um, the stronger spirit that's moving into her body that she'll be effectively lost. So what you know, starts out as, well, all we have to do is get to this place and find this little girl, turns out to be, we've got about 24 hours to get this kid out of there. And she's under guard in a, um, you know, because she's, she's the main attraction of the big festival that's going to start the Yeah. Um, and poignantly, so, she kind of knows, right? She's, but she yeah. has communications with this uh, to be reincarnated person. Yes. And yeah, she, she says, he wants to wear me like a dress. Yeah. Uh, just hard to read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the process of this, um, Varese also finds out some stuff about her parents, who she already wasn't getting along with terribly well. Um, but they, she finds out even more about them. Um, one of the things that I'm a big fan of is choice. I don't like stories about fate and destiny and you're the pre-programmed chosen one and all of mm. that, because I think ultimately we all have, no matter how tragic or wonderful your life is, you have choices of how you're going to react to it. Mm. And the three extraction, well, four extraction agents um, who destroyed the library of the Sapphire Wind 
I didn't get to do as much with Zarak's mother as I wanted. Uh, I, I do want to do more with her later. But Connell, Grunwald's father, is really broken up over what he was part of. And part of the reason he won't search for a cure is because he doesn't want it to come out. He doesn't want even his wife to know what he did. Uh, Varisa's parents make a very different choice. Their opinion is, hey, we did it. We got away with it. Now we're going to create ourselves a position from which we can take advantage of it. And for Varese, who grew up a child of privilege with um, what to her seemed pretty doting parents, this is a shock. Um, but I believe it's a matter of choice. It's not they were driven to it or anything. They chose. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting, you know, after the sequence on the creator's visage, visage aisles, and I want to come back and say a couple things about that still, but uh, uh, yeah, there's a there's a negotiation, and it's sort of there's like a it's just it's an interesting insight, without saying too much about it. You know, uh, Varese's you know in some senses negotiating against herself and right and against her own interests and the way that Inahem and Zark dealt with their past deeds kind of makes them vulnerable now. It's a very you know, it's it's not a kind of, oh, I say 10, you say 100, let's split the difference. It's, you know, a negotiation where people have vulnerabilities and pressure points. I, I uh -huh. thought that was uh, really verisimilitudinous. That was, that was <laughs> interesting to read. I come from a family of lawyers. What can I say? Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, well, also, and you know, your, your anthropology background. So I just, uh, the, the creator's visage aisles. So the story that the, the inhabitants tell themselves is that their, their God sank beneath the sea and his or her face emerges to form the islands. Um, and, uh, and specifically the island that the team goes to uh -huh. is, uh, is called sky Descry. And, uh -huh. and it's an eyeball. Uh, that's the this understanding of it. Is it's the god's eye? Uh -huh. uh, the other eye is volcanic, uh, uh -huh. which I think I think that's really wonderful that these people who have something like human sacrifice, right, uh -huh. and really big culture of miracles, are living basically on a volcano where it's like living on a river, right? You're wholly yeah. at the mercy of this thing I cannot control. Yeah. Right? And on the one hand, it can wipe us out. But on the other hand, I live on an island because there's a volcano, right? Without it, I, I can't live. I, uh, one of, yeah, one of the impacts um, on the design of that was a trip I made back in 1995 to New Zealand. And I was, some the local fans there are just marvelous. I'm still in touch with a bunch of them. Um, and after the con was over, they took time to play tour guides. And one day we went out on a ferry ride and the, the woman who was with us that day just started saying, yeah, you know, in the early, in the early maps from when the British explorers came here, those islands aren't there. Um, and it just really brought home that they're, they were living in a place that within recorded European historical time had new islands. Yeah. Um, and I really, I really liked that. I think it stuck with me. And when I started designing Sky Descry uh, and its associated islands, it just creeped up and, and yeah. took its own shape. And, and, and worked its way into the culture, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I, I think that's fantastic. Um, Maybe one more. T tell us about the way they get there. So the, the plane, it take too long to fly there, right? Fly a right. to New Zealand. Um, they, the library says, hey, there's this, or per, they find in the library a device. What's right. that device? Uh, tell us how that looks. Oh, I, I, it's, basically, um, it's basically a transport portal that you, uh, to use modern terminology, program by how you arrange the different parts. And because I am a gamer with great enthusiasm, 
I, uh, I decided that the different parts might as well look like polyhedral dice. Um, so they aren't, but they are. Yep. Um, but it works because one of the things, again, going back to info dumps is what really matters about this device is will it work and how it works and what its limitations are. My readers don't need me to design and spend time describing all of the intricacies of, you know, we draw an alpha here and a beta here and a delta there and, a, you know, fill it in with, with um, you know, chalk made from brown hair from Xerox, Maine. And, you know, if I do that much, then the reader really has every expectation of going, if you put me through all of that, why has to matter. they just walk through and get there? Yeah. So since I knew it was going to serve as a transport device, it provided a, a good shorthand yeah. for me to use. Um, before we run out of time, I, I do want to uh, bounce over to one of the challenges they run into on their way to their final uh, search for okay. Xerox Master. Okay. Because to me, it ties in a lot to the world building. Um, and that is their, their battle with the Uthin grace. <laughs> um, one of the things that was really important to me in this world, again, without info dumping, was to make it clear that while there are certain places where the biology seems to roughly parallel ours, I mean, the the race to which our inquisitors belong is very bipedal human shaped. Um, there's an awful lot of creatures that either like uh, Heru the Zuzu seem to echo a dinosaur from our world or like Grace are, wow, evolution took a different turn here, didn't it? Um, and I love Grace and when one of my uh, friends was reading the manuscript, she said, you have a really strange brain. <laughs> and, you know, to me, though, that's one of the delights about writing science fiction and fantasy. If we're going to just, you know, hi, this is Japan, let's file off the serial numbers, um, et cetera, then why are we doing it? Go write a historical novel about Japan. Um, so if I'm going to give you a fantasy or science fiction setting, there's either going to be a reason why it's a lot like Earth or it's going to be uh, very different. And one of the things I really liked about Overware were the times that I could let myself design something very different and work it into the plot. Yeah, yeah, that's, fan that's fantastic. Um... Well, we haven't, we haven't exhausted all the quests. We haven't even touched on some of the quests yet. But, uh, uh, but is there any, anything else that you want? Your signal's breaking up. Can you hear me? Your signal's breaking up. Okay. Am I still breaking up? Okay. Shoot. Um, okay. I'll just keep talking until you can hear me, maybe. Is that okay? Uh, can, am I clear? Am I still? You sound like a Cylon. <laughs> That's not good. You sound like a Cylon with a pixie dancing in the background. Let me change. Okay, so do there I... There you are. You're back. I'm back. Okay. All right. That's... Um... All right. I don't know what happened, but I just changed microphones. I think my fancy microphone might be malfunctioning. I'll have to go get a... I mean, fancy. The mm -hmm. hundred webcam one as opposed to the built-in all, right, all right no one cares about that um so okay we have not exhausted all of the quests and i i think maybe you know we're not going to go down um i i will say personally oh spoilers here i charmed to find that uh one of the quests involves them going back to earth <laughs> right? oh yeah uh speaking of reasons why it has to be these three um yeah. but is yeah, it and for me, that one was a great deal of fun because of course my husband's an archeologist. So I've been in uh, repositories and stuff. I know what they're like and, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, 
So is there anything else in particular you'd like to share with uh, with readers and potential readers about the books, both of them, about this one? Well, at the risk of sounding pedantic, I wrote them to answer for me, to me with one of the biggest issues of portal fantasy is why so often does it involve kids? Because I don't know about you, but if I wanted to save Narnia, I would, as charming as those four kids are, um, they're not exactly competent. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I wanted to experiment. And there are other books that deal with it, uh, the Thomas Covenant ones, which are very dark. Uh, Gordon R. Dixon's Charming, the Dragon and the George. Um, but I wanted to deal with it in a little bit more depth. In The Dragon and the George, the, you know, the, the characters basically walk out of their lives and never seem to have any connection. So I, one of the things that I wanted to experiment with is, let's do a portal fantasy and look at people who have lives in two worlds and are trying to maintain them, who are adults, and it, it had led to a lot of challenges, which meant it led to a different story. So it may fit in the general portal fantasy thing, but it's a portal fantasy like you're not going to have found before. Um, and I hope that people have as much fun reading it as I have writing it. I like these people, I like this place. Um, it's not grimdark, but it's certainly not light and fluffy. It's not popcorn. But if you're in a mood to sit down with a book and curl up and have a fun adventure, it's there. But you may find little things creeping into your head and making you think afterwards, which to me is what I look for in a good book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the book winds up, um, it's clearly complete in and of itself. Um, the women are not the women don't end up permanently committed back to earth right um so they'll make choices about where they want to spend their time or you know or whether they want to move back and forth um do you think you might write more stories in this setting or i mean you mentioned not exploring the culture of the islands as much as you like have you thought about writing additional stories here i definitely want to because i like it there and i think there's there's room for more stories what I would, in an ideal universe, what I would like to do is write relatively, you know, standalone interconnected novels. I, I strongly suspect that they might end up more like these, this first duology, um, because that seems to be a length that I tend to design stories in. But yeah, it's a place I really liked and really want to go back to. And I definitely will go back to it one way or another. I would, of course, like to continue my relationship with the current publisher, but you mentioned Brandon Sanderson and hybrid publication. Um, I certainly would not raise 20 million, but I can afford to, uh, to indie pub if I need to. I've done it before when I haven't wanted people to mess with my books. Yep. So, um, so we're in an interesting point. So I guess you could say that in my case, the story will rule rather than market considerations. Hey, it's part of being at my age. I, I want to do what I want to do with what time I have. And I'm going to have fun with it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a whole other conversation we can have about the technology of publishing and how that affects different writers. But, but yeah. for sure, if you don't, if you don't need I need to get an advance from the publisher to live, and you want creative control. We live in an era and a and, you know time and a place when it's yours if you want it. Well, one of the I mean, I would be very happy if you ever decide to do a Bain podcast about advice for writers and in this thing. I would be happy to be signed up because um, I've from the beginning of my career, I've seen a lot of changes go on. Um, and have have made a lot of choices. And on the whole, I really do try to reach out and say, um, 
for goodness sake, put money away for taxes, for goodness sake, um, you know, don't buy a sofa until the new the check is in. And remember, uh, you can buy your freedom by having a few less fripperies. And that's not a bad thing at all, especially for a creative. So yeah, it's, as you say, it's a whole separate conversation, but one I'd be happy to be part of. Let me, uh, let me actually, that's a, that's a great idea. We, uh, uh, let, let me, uh, rather than get into it here, let me, let me raise that question. That's, uh, well, you that's, know, it's, it's interesting because there's another Bain author who, um, essentially we started on a similar road and have taken in different paths there, thereof, uh, Chuck Gannon. Oh, yeah. I've known him since I was 20, eight, 19 or 20. Um, and uh, we, you know, it's, but I mean, it, it is an interesting topic and it's certainly, I think Brandon Sanderson has made a great choice for Brandon Sanderson, but people have to remember, he's the one to say, he has a staff of 30 people in the warehouse. Right, and he's taking a risk and you know, in some alternate universe, there may be a Brandon Sanderson who made the same choice, set up the Kickstarter, and nobody went for it. Uh, right. So. Which all that all that happens is if you set up a Kickstarter and no one goes for it, you go, well, I lost my investment in that. But, you know, he, I think more people need to read the interview he did with the New York Times, where he talks about the resource base he's coming from yeah. and realize that me and a couple of, you know, I have no staff, I have no assistant. Um, it is not a choice I would ever make, but more power to him. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, fantastic, let me, let me wind up here. Um, okay. Hey, once again, the, the book is Aurora Borealis Bridge, out now from Bain uh, Books in hardcover and- Actually uh, trade paperback. Oh, is it trade paperback? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I looked on Amazon and I, I wrote down hardcover. That's mostly my mistake. Um, but Jane Linsgold, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I had fun. Thank you very much, David. You take care now. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobra's. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Swallowing visibly, Viljo unglued himself from the floor and threaded his way through the chairs to the dais. What I showed you a minute ago, Bai said, once again addressing the entire room, was essentially a party trick, though with some obvious military applications. This, now, I think you'll find along more practical lines. From his tunic, he produced two metal discs, each ten centimeters in diameter, with a small black inset in the center. Hold the one in your left hand sideways, by instructed Viljo, and when I give the word, throw the other toward the back of the room. Mendro had meantime gone to one of the room's back corners. Taking a few steps off to the side, Bai checked positions and bent his knees slightly. All right? Now! Viljo lofted the disc toward the door. Behind him, Johnny sensed Mendro's leap and catch, and an instant later the disc was shooting back toward Bai. In a smooth motion that was again too fast to follow, Bai fell to the side, out of the disc's path. And as he rolled again to one knee, two needles of light flashed in opposite directions from his outstretched hands. Viljo's surprised yelp was almost covered by the crash of the flying disc against the wall. Good, Bai said briskly, getting to his feet and heading over to retrieve the first disc. Viljo, show them yours. 
Even from this distance, Johnny could see the small hole just barely off-center through the black inset. Impressive, hmm? Bai said, stepping back up on the dais and presenting the other target. Of course, you can't always expect the enemy to hold still for you. This shot hadn't been nearly as clean. Only the very edge of the black showed the laser's mark, and when the light hit it right, Johnny could see that the adjacent metal was rippled with heat. Still, it was an impressive performance, especially as Johnny had no idea whereby had been hiding his weapons. Or where they were now, for that matter. That gives you an idea of what a cobra can do, Mendro said, returning to the front of the room and sending Viljo back to find a seat. Now I'd like to show you a little of the nuts and bolts involved. Retrieving the comm board, he keyed in an instruction, and a full-sized image of a man appeared beside him. From the outside, a cobra is virtually indistinguishable from any normal citizen. However, from the inside, the hologram's exterior faded to a blue skeleton with oddly shaped white spots scattered randomly around. The blue is a ceramic lamine, which makes all the major and most of the minor bones unbreakable for all practical purposes. That, along with some strategic ligament strengthening, is half the reason c 3 Bi was able to pull off those ceiling jumps without killing himself. The non-laminated areas, you can see, are there to allow the bone marrow to continue putting red blood cells into the system. Another touch on the comm board, and the piebald skeleton faded to dull gray, forming a contrast to the small yellow ovoids that appeared at joints all over the hologram. Servo motors, Mendro identified them the other half of the ceiling jump. They act as strength multipliers, just like the ones in standard exoskeletons and fighting suits, except that these are particularly hard to detect. The power supply is a little nuclear goodie here, he pointed to an asymmetric object situated somewhere in the vicinity of the stomach, and I'm not going to explain it because I don't understand it myself. Suffice it to say the thing works, and works well." Johnny thought back to Bai's incredible jumps and felt his stomach tighten. Servos and bone laminae were all well and good, but a trick like that could hardly be learned overnight. Either this cobra training was going to take months at the minimum, or else Bai was an exceptionally athletic man. And if there was one thing that Johnny knew for certain, it was that he himself hadn't been selected for this group because of any innate gymnastic abilities. Apparently, the army was getting set for a long, drawn-out conflict. On the dais, the hologram had again changed, this time marking several sections in red. Cobra offensive and defensive equipment, Mendro said. Small lasers in the tips of both little fingers, one of which also contains the discharge electrodes for an arc thrower, capacitor in the body cavity here. In the left calf is an anti-armor laser, here are the speakers for two different types of sonic weapons, and up by the eyes and ears are a set of optical and auditory enhancers. Recruit McDonald, sir, the other said with military correctness, a slight accent burring his words. Are these optical enhancers like the targeting lenses of a fighting suit, where you're given a range-scale image in front of your eyes? Mendro shook his head. That sort of thing is fine for medium and long-range work, but pretty useless for the infighting you may have to do. Which brings us to the real key of the whole Cobra project. The red faded, and inside the skull, a green walnut-sized object appeared, situated apparently directly beneath the brain. From it snaked dozens of slender filaments, most of them paralleling the spinal column before separating off to go their individual ways. Looking at it, Johnny's thoughts flashed back to a picture from his old fourth-grade biology text, a diagram showing the major structures of the human nervous system. This, Mendro said, wagging a finger through the green walnut, is a computer, probably the most powerful computer of its size ever developed. These optical fibers, he indicated the filament network, run to all the servos and weapons, and to a set of kinesthetic sensors implanted directly in the bone lamine. Your targeting lenses, MacDonald, still require you to do the actual aiming and firing. This nanocomputer gives you the option of having the whole operation done automatically. Johnny glanced at MacDonald, saw the other nodding slowly. It wasn't a new idea, certainly. 
Computerized weaponry had been standard on starships and atmosphere fighters for centuries. But to give an individual soldier that kind of control was indeed a technological breakthrough. And Mendro wasn't even finished with his surprises. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Thanks to DJ Butler, and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Jane Linscold for sitting down to discuss the Aurora Borealis Bridge. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.